Well, what is mankind's greatest need? Normally, when we as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ contemplate a question like that, we are uh, quick to answer along the lines of man's need for atonement and his need for positive righteousness, which comes only from Christ. And those are real human needs, and they are really answered in the man Christ. But I will not be the first one to suggest that those needs are inherently subservient needs. They are not, that's not to diminish them in any way. But what I mean is that the meeting of those needs, atonement and positive righteousness, puts us in a position to have yet another more basic and fundamental need met. And that is to know God. The point of having our sins forgiven and giving, uh, getting the righteousness of Jesus Christ is that we may stand before God to the end that, as the confession says, we may know God and enjoy Him forever. This is the very purpose of our creation. We say all the time, God is a self-revealing God. It's who He is. It's in His nature. He cannot but reveal Himself. And so in creating man, man must be inherently created as a vessel of revelation. His purpose is to receive the knowledge of God and then to enjoy and act upon that knowledge. We were created to receive revelation. So that's our greatest need. And that knowledge of Him, which is our greatest need, comes to us via the process known as revelation. Now we speak of sin's impact on many things. Its impact upon our wills and our minds, upon the created order which has been subjected to bondage. But one of the things we may not consider as often is sin's impact on our ability to receive revelation from God and hence to know Him. I'm not talking about our ability to assent to and enjoy the revelation that we do receive. That's a function of the will and the will's enslavement to sin. I'm talking about sin's impact on our ability to even receive it in the first place. And the Bible clearly shows us that this is, in fact, a problem for sinners, the reception of revelation. Consider our first parents. When they were created in their unfallen state, they were the recipients of verbal revelation from God. God spoke to them in the garden, did He not? They received revelation from His mouth. And they came to know God in this way, in addition to the created order and the knowledge of God that was written on their being. But they received verbal revelation. And hearing the voice of the Lord was no burden for them. It was a joy. It was something that they were created for. It was a pleasure, a felicitous thing. But then they sinned. And in their first post-fall interaction with God, the Bible shows us that what was once a joyous intercourse and exchange has now become a fearful experience for fallen man. Consider the famous passage in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. We read there that the Lord God, they heard the sound of the Lord God, our English translations say, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now that can be a, an especially difficult verse to translate, particularly the last part of it. We won't go into all of the particulars. But at the very least, I want you to consider this. That when it says they heard the sound of the Lord God walking, that the Hebrew word translated sound there is the word kol. Q-O-L. That word is most often translated throughout the Old Testament, voice. 
You think of Psalm 29, an entire psalm dedicated to expounding the majesties of the Kol Yahweh, the voice of the Lord. Uh, the Kol Yahweh thunders and flashes forth in lightning. The Kol Yahweh induces the deer to give birth. It is over the mighty waters. It's powerful. That's the voice of the Lord. And so we might also translate this, and from what I'm reading from, from many commentators, it would probably be better translated as, they heard the voice of Yahweh God coming to them in the garden. And that same Kol Yahweh, that same voice of the Lord that had spoken to them pre-fall, now comes to them in their sinful condition. But now it says that when mankind heard it, Adam responds, I heard your call, your voice, and I was afraid. Now, now, Adam, you had no problem hearing the voice of the Lord just yesterday, prior to your eating of the fruit. It was a joyful thing. But, but now, you're afraid. Did God change? God has not changed in the past 24 hours. What has changed? Man. Man is now a fallen creature. And now, when he hears the voice of God, it's not as if God is having to come to him in some different external manifestation. The very hearing of the voice of a holy God on the part of sinners inspires terror and fear. So that is the first example in the Bible of the problem of God speaking directly to sinful men. And if you have any doubt, that is confirmed later on in another famous episode in the Old Testament at Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai... The fiery theophany cloud of God descends upon the mountain in Exodus 20. And what has God come to do in this narrative? He's come to give revelation. He's about to speak the Ten Commandments and give the content of the Mosaic Covenant. But as God from the mountain speaks and begins to reveal His Word, it says that the people stood far off and trembled and they were afraid. And they said to Moses, do not let God speak to us, lest we die. You speak to us, but as for this God, we are afraid of him. Now the text does say that they feared the mighty sound and the thunder and the lightning in the Exodus 20 account. It, it names those things. But I would suggest to you that it was not the intensity of the natural sound waves that they were afraid of there. It, it was not like a child at his first... Fourth of July festival where he just can't handle all of the loud noises. That wasn't the issue. Thunder, lightning, and quaking are actually used as metaphors throughout the scripture for God's voice. And Moses explicitly makes the connection between the sounds that they heard and the voice of God later on in Deuteronomy. He quotes the people and he quotes them as literally saying, Do not let me hear this kol Yahweh, this voice of God, any longer. It wasn't the intensity of what they saw and the sound waves that they heard, but it was the voice of God that made them to tremble. Because in that moment, the word of the living God was speaking, and that word which cuts through the joints and the marrow of men's souls was coming into these sinful people, and they could not handle it. This phenomenon only happens when the divine, holy essence speaks to sinful humanity. They couldn't handle it. And so we have a problem. We have a serious problem. When God comes to speak to sinful men, they cannot bear to hear His voice and to receive direct revelation from His mouth as they once did. 
And this problem is so great that if it's not resolved, there will be no salvation. Consider, in order for God to, assuming that God wants to save sinners, which of course we know from Scripture He does, in order for Him to do it, He has to provide a means of salvation. But in order for that means to be effectual unto mankind, mankind must have a revelation of what those means of salvation are. They have to know. They have to be told. Because it's one thing for salvation to be possible. But if mankind doesn't know about it, it does him no good. And so here we have man needing a revelation of salvation on the one hand, and on the other hand, not being able to receive that revelation directly from God. And so something has to happen for this bridge to be gapped between God and man. And of course, in God's wisdom, he has a solution for this. We read of it in Deuteronomy chapter 18. In that text, in the first half of the chapter, the people are preparing to cross into the land of Canaan. And Moses is speaking to them. And he tells them that when they get in the land, they are going to encounter Canaanite diviners and soothsayers. And he says to them, you shall not hearken to their voice. You shall not listen to them. So here you have pagans cast from the garden of God, away from the mouth of God, and yet they know that they must still have access to the divine mind. And so they've invented these men who claim that they can reveal God. And Moses says, when you get in there and you encounter those people, you will not listen to them. And so the question naturally arises on the heart of an Israelite, then Moses, how are we to discern the divine will? How are we to know God's mind if we can't use the soothsayers and we cannot hear directly from God's voice? And God gives them an answer. And the text says, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among you. It is to him that you shall listen. God will raise up a prophet. And God actually confirms everything we've been saying so far in terms of the reasoning for the necessity of a prophet. God says to them, this is what you asked of me at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not again hear this voice of Yahweh my God, lest I die. And Yahweh said to Moses, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak all that I command him. See, God confirms that their request is genuine. He confirms they need somebody to speak on behalf of God. They can't hear it themselves. And so what we have here is the revelation that prophetism, to use a Voss term, is God's answer to the fall, the problem of post-fall revelation. A prophet. Now, in anticipation of our text in 1 Samuel 3, it is important to note this, that as Christians, when we read that text from Deuteronomy that speaks of the prophet like unto Moses that God will raise up, our, and it's a good one, natural inclination is to jump to its ultimate fulfillment in the Messiah 1,400 years later. But if that's all we do with that text, we do miss something important. The passage not only predicts the Navi, the prophet, but it also functions to establish an office of prophet in Israel, which office will terminate in the prophet of God. Now, to see that, consider for just a moment that God's announcing of a prophet, as we said, comes in response to their encountering Canaanite false prophets in the land. 
And so if God's response only provides for the Messianic prophet 1,400 years later, it does nothing to answer the quandary that Israel is in as they're about to go into the land. There are other considerations that prove this as well. But that should be sufficient to establish that this is intended to give the office of the prophet to the people of Israel as they come into the land of Canaan. It's just like God's prediction of David's son in 2 Samuel 7. He says he's going to raise up a son who will sit on his throne forever. Well, that has ultimate fulfillment in one man, but it, it first came in the form of a line of sons who would eventually terminate in the one to sit on the throne for eternity. Now, before turning to 1 Samuel 3, one final important consideration that will help us to understand this text. God has promised prophets like unto Moses to give to the people. And so we need to understand what it means for a prophet to be like unto Moses. There's probably a lot of things that could be said in this regard, but I have picked just three that I think will be most helpful. First, a prophet is one who has stood in the divine counsel of Yahweh. When I speak of the divine counsel, I'm talking about the heavenly throne room. The prophet is one who was brought before the throne of God and is there made privy to the divine will. He receives a word, and then he is sent as a messenger to the people. We read all the time in the Old Testament that the prophets were sent. God sent a prophet. From where does he send them? Very often in our minds we think, well, they just heard a voice in their head, and when it says God sent them, it meant God sent them from wherever they happened to be sitting at the moment out to get up and go talk to the people. But that's not what it's talking about. A prophet has been enraptured in a vision into God's chamber council, and he is sent from there to the people. It's like a human courier who comes into the palace of the king to receive a message, and then is commissioned from that point to go and to deliver the message to the people. We see this clearly in the lives of the men Ezekiel and Isaiah. They are enraptured into the divine throne room at their commissioning as prophets, and there they receive a word from the Lord, and he sends them to the people. Now, we do not have a recording of the uh, commissioning visionary experience of every prophet in the Old Testament. We only get a few of them. But to make sure that we know that, that Isaiah and Ezekiel were not just one-off experiences, that this really was the regular experience of a prophet, we have the words of Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 18. It assumes that the normal experience of a prophet is to have a vision rapture into the divine council. Listen to its words. In speaking of false prophets, it says, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. And here's the key word. For who among them has stood in the council of Yahweh to see and hear his word. See, false prophets have not stood in the council, C-I-L, not S-E-L, of God. True prophets, therefore, are assumed to be those who have. They have stood before the Lord. They have seen and heard his word. Moses is the premier example of this. He is brought into the heavenly sanctuary at Sinai. He's raptured up in the top of the mountain. And it says he sees God and he receives a word, and then he is sent from that location down to the people. So that's the first and the longest way in which a prophet is like unto Moses. Second, 
Prophets are mediators or prosecutors of the covenant, just as Moses was. The covenant that God enacted at Sinai was a covenant of blessings and cursings. It was a works-based covenant, not for salvation. Moses was frequently tasked with bringing charges against the people and announcing the curses that would come upon them. You think, for example, when God decides that the people are going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. That is a curse that God is placing upon them. And God speaks it to Moses and commissions him to go tell the people that this curse of his covenant is coming upon them. The prophet was God's lawyer in the covenant transaction. So any prophet like unto Moses will be a covenant prosecutor, a covenant speaking mediator. And finally, Moses was tasked with revealing God. Thirdly, the third way in which a prophet is like unto Moses is that he reveals God. That's what we most often think of when we think of prophets. He not only says the word which he received, but he then explains, exegetes, or preaches the significance of that word to the people with the end that they might know their God. So, a prophet like unto Moses has stood in the divine council. He is a covenant mediator, and he is tasked with revealing God. Now, with all that background in mind, I told you it would be an extended introduction, we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3. And our basic assertion is this, that what God promised in Deuteronomy 18 with the prophet, he begins to fulfill in the person of Samuel as he is called and commissioned to the office of prophet. In this text, he is patterned as a prophet like unto Moses sent to the people. And so what I want to do with this text is I'm going to divide it up in, into two parts. First, we're going to look at the actual call, the calling of Samuel. That'll be verses 1 to 9. Secondly, we will look at the one called the man Samuel, the boy Samuel. That'll be verses 10 to 21. So first, let us look at the call of Samuel. First, I want us to consider the context of this call, the context in which it comes. For this, we're going to look at the cultural context in verses 1 to 3a, and then we will look at its locational context. So then first, the cultural context. In the second half of verse 1, we read, The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Now, when it says that there was no frequent vision, that is key prophetic imagery or, or prophetic language. Prophets received a vision. So the fact that there was no vision in this day indicates that the office of prophet had not yet been fully enacted. You'll you recall that uh, Deuteronomy 18 says that the office will be installed when they get into the land. Well, this is 400 years after they got into the land. So what's, what's the deal? What's with the delay? Well, in Judges 2, the angel comes, the angel of Yahweh comes and announces a judgment on the people because they had not fully conquered the land. They had not obeyed what God had said. And so God temporarily withholds the regular, official, instituted office of the prophet because of their failure to conquer the land. And so the people are without a vision. And the ultimate judgment on a people, as Amos tells us, is a famine of hearing the words of God himself. Now they did occasionally experience these one-off prophets who would be sent for a singular mission here or there, like the man of God who came to Eli just a couple of chapters ago. 
but we don't have any evidence of an ongoing public, not, not to private people, but public office of the prophet. And if you want to know how Deborah fits into that, we can talk about that at lunch. But the, so the text says there is no ongoing prophetic vision. God hadn't given it. Now notice the way that the text captures the essence of this cultural depravity, depra deprivation of God's word in its description of this scene. It says this, At that time Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his place. Eli is described as one who has poor eyesight. Now if anyone should have been receiving prophetic vision, should have been this man. He would have been the most qualified, the most obvious choice. But the lack of prophetic vision of God is fittingly paralleled with his physical blindness. And in fact, it's a metaphor for the state of Israel as a whole. They have blind leaders and no direction from God, physically and spiritually. And yet, our text will resolve this, and it prefigures the resolution by a, ref a curious reference to the lampstand, the lamp of God. It says, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Now, we, we, we mentioned this yet again uh, at, at men's group yesterday morning, but you'll recall briefly that the lampstand faced the table of the bread of presence, and its light shone on the bread, which was representative of the people. And so this was a picture of the face of God shining upon the people, uh, which is the ultimate blessing, to walk before God and to behold His face. And yet, despite all the darkness and wickedness in the land, God has not completely withdrawn the light of His face. For the lamp still burns, and the Lord has not abandoned His people yet. And then notice, right after mentioning the lampstand, it mentions Samuel. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. Samuel was lying down. Now why put those two right next to each other? It's to hint that Samuel is going to be the means whereby God will continue to reveal himself or to make his face to shine upon the people. And so the call of Samuel as a prophet to an official capacity comes in this context. There is a lack of revelation, but God will resolve it. Next, notice the locational context that this call comes into. We read this in the second half of verse 3. We read that Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Notice, the call comes in God's house. It doesn't come at any random place. It's not coming at, at Samuel's uh, parents' house or something like that. It comes in God's house where the ark is, symbolic of his presence. And we'll make more of that in just a moment. Just note that for now. The call comes in the temple. Next, notice the state of the one who is called. Jump down to verse 7 for just a moment. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. Now that language that says Samuel did not know the Lord is meant to immediately bring into our minds a parallel between Samuel and somebody that we've already encountered, the sons of Eli, who we were told were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And so there's an immediate question in our minds. Is the text saying that Samuel is fundamentally no different from the wicked sons of Eli who also did not know the Lord? Well, no, obviously the word no, yada, is being punned on here or equivocated, used in two different senses. When it says Samuel did not yet know the Lord, it's saying that he has not yet stood in the counsel of the Lord to receive his word. 
It's setting us up for his visionary calling unto the office. So Samuel is one who loves the Lord, but he has not yet experienced the reception of the prophetic vision. Next, notice the manner of the call. And this is where we'll get into what God does. In verses 4 to 6 and 8a, we read, And the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel arose and went to Eli, and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. And then we read in verse 8a, The Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Now I want you to notice something about our Lord as he begins to call the boy Samuel. The prophetic office, remember, is being given in response to the people not being able to bear the voice of God. And Samuel is a young child. And so God comes to him, and and rather than the fiery theophany of Sinai, which he could have enacted here if he wanted to, he comes quietly. He whispers into the night and speaks to Samuel. And so the quiet manner in which God calls him perfectly illustrates the purpose of the giving of the office in the first place. It's so that mankind can now receive the words of God in a way that is suitable to them. God does intend to give revelation to men. He could have terrified Samuel, but he doesn't because God is a God who knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. He is gentle. He is compassionate in the call of the first of those to hold the official prophetic office in Israel. Now, it's true. Later prophets will have sort of these overpowering visions of God, Isaiah, Ezekiel, the apostle John, But God does give us in this call a reminder that though He is a consuming fire, He is also the good shepherd of the sheep who is compassionate and has regard for His people. Next, notice the selectivity of the call in verses 8b and 9. We read there, Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if He calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Now, this call that comes is directed at one individual. Eli is also present in the temple of the Lord, but he doesn't receive the call. Eli is eventually clued in on what's going on, but it's not his call. It is a call that comes to Samuel. Now, to the eyes of all outside, as I mentioned earlier, Eli is the obvious choice here. He's older, he's more experienced. He has an official office as high priest. He's been serving the Lord, presumably, for decades. And yet again, we have another example in the Scriptures of where man looks at the outward appearance and selects based on his own perceived criteria, and yet the Lord looks at the heart. Eli has had his chance, but he didn't guard the sanctuary. And so Samuel is now God's choice. Eli realizes in this moment that Samuel is receiving the call, but he himself is not. So that's the call. It comes as a reminder of God's kind intentions to his people that he will speak to them. And he calls Samuel. Now let's look at the one called in verses 10 to 21. This section establishes Samuel as a prophet, and it answers the basic question, how is Samuel a prophet like unto Moses? I want to frame this 
this uh, section basically is answering how Samuel fulfills the announced office of Deuteronomy 18. First, I want you to notice that Samuel stands here in the divine council. Now, there is no uh, detailed explanation of some awesome heavenly visionary experience like we get with uh, Isaiah or Ezekiel. But we do get hints in this text that Samuel receives a vision into the divine council as other official prophets do. Consider a couple things for a moment. First, remember the location that this takes place in. It's in the temple of God. And specifically, the ark, which is the footstool of the divine throne room, is mentioned. In fact, the text goes out of its way to mention it. It says that Samuel was lying down in the temple where the ark of God was. Why do we need to know that? Everybody knows that the ark is in the sanctuary. Why does the text go out of its way to mention it? Because this, at the footstool of God, at his ark, is the place where God often comes to give these visionary, heavenly experiences to men. Moses experienced it in the tabernacle, as did Joshua, Solomon. And you think of Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, as he is in the temple. Verse 10 says that the Lord came and, this is a fascinating verse, the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times. Now, when it says the Lord came and stood, that's basically a copy and paste of the same phrase that is used in Numbers 12 and Exodus 33 for when God would come down in the pillar of cloud and stand at the entrance to the tabernacle and Moses would come in and meet him face to face. He would receive a vision from God, would Moses, and then a word. And so we have the same language used here. God came and stood to speak to Samuel. Then consider verse 15b. It says, after that we'll go back and go through the uh, specific contents of the vision in a moment. But at the end, it says that Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Now it, it uses the word vision. What does that mean? He saw something here. It's not just audible words in his head. The Lord came and stood and he saw something, just as Moses saw and then finally, uh, this is further established in verse 21. If you jump down there to the end for a moment. Verse 21 says, The Lord appeared, appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Now notice here. God is continually coming and revealing himself to Samuel by an appearance. And God reveals himself, it says, in visions by the word of God. Now, that's a strange phrase. What might Samuel be seeing in these visions? Perhaps it's that same word of God that other prophets saw throughout the Old Testament. So all of that taken together, all those hints and those connections to other parts of the Bible indicate to us that Samuel has a vision of God in his divine counsel at the ark of God, his footstool, just as Moses and the other prophets did. So that's the first way that Samuel is portrayed as a prophet like unto Moses. He has a vision and stands in the divine council. Secondly, he is charged with mediating the covenant. We'll see this in verses 11 to 14. In these verses, Samuel receives a word of covenant prosecution. Let's read them together. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. 
On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of his house will not be atoned for by sacrifice or by offering. Now, Samuel is having a vision. And as he does so, as he stands before the Lord, this is the word that he receives. And it is a word of covenant. God is announcing curses, and Samuel is to bring the word of the prosecution of those curses. Now, what covenant is Samuel here charged with prosecuting? Well, it is fundamentally the covenant with the house of Eli. It was mentioned to us in chapter 2 and verse 30 where God said he swore to Eli, he, that's the language of covenant, he swore that Eli and his house would forever continue as priests. But now, because of their disobedience, God is cutting them off. And Eli is also part of the broader covenant that is mentioned in Scripture, of the covenant that God makes with the house of Levi. Eli is a Levite. Levites were the priests. And God made a covenant with the house of the priests that they should be going in and out before him forever. It's mentioned in Jeremiah 33 and Malachi 2. And God says in that Malachi passage that the covenant he makes with the Levites was for them to instruct the people in the fear of his name. Eli has violated that covenant. Eli has not cared for the people. He has not cared for God's house. And so God comes and through his prophet Samuel brings a word of covenant condemnation upon Eli. And then next we see, after he receives the word of covenant prosecution, we will see Samuel prosecuting the covenant. This is in verses 15 to 18. We read that Samuel lay until the morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And he was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What is it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me that he has told you. And then we read, So Samuel told him everything, and he hid nothing. Now what's going on here? Samuel has been commissioned by God to charge the office of the prophet, but he hasn't done it yet. So he must first pass a prophetic test. He must demonstrate his allegiance to God. And he must do so by actually coming and bringing the word of condemnation that God gave to him. Now consider, Eli was tempted to put his love for his sons above the zeal that he had for the Lord. And he failed in that temptation. Here, Samuel is tempted to put his love and affection for Eli above the harsh words that God had instructed him to speak. And yet... Despite his fear, despite his trepidation, he does faithfully discharge his covenant task. He discharges the word of prophecy. And so Samuel has demonstrated for us that he identifies more with God and his love for him than even his uh, misplaced, at possibly, love for his closest companion. Just as Moses had to deliver hard words to the people to the point that he asked God if his life could just end rather than continue. Even so, Moses remained faithful to discharge the words of the covenant. He was a faithful covenant messenger, no matter how hard it got. And so Samuel is here likened unto Moses in that he also is faithful 
with a hard word that his flesh does not want to give. He is a true covenant mediator. Finally, Samuel is like unto Moses in that he reveals God to the people. And you see this in verses 19 and 20. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. So having passed his probationary test of covenant mediation, Samuel now uh, begins his official office of public proclamation to the people. He's being confirmed here. He's called, he's commissioned, he succeeds, and now at the end of the chapter, he is established. He is God's prophet to the people. God had said in Deuteronomy 18 that you'll know the words of a true prophet as opposed to a false prophet in that the words that a false prophet speaks will not come true, but the words that a true prophet speaks will. And God in this text lets none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And so he is demonstrating that Samuel is a prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy 18. He's a true prophet. His words do not fall to the ground. God makes sure of it. He puts his stamp and his seal upon the boy, Samuel. And because none of his words fell, because God blessed all of them and they came to pass, the people could know that what he said about God was true. So God has done it. We go from the people unable to hear the voice of God at Sinai to now, at the end of 1 Samuel 3, a continual river of revelation from the mouth of God has been opened up. And God is once again speaking continually, publicly, to His people. He gives them a man from his, their own tribe, and He puts His words in Samuel's mouth, just as it was with Moses. So then, what is the doctrine, if we can boil it all down, the essential doctrine that is contained in this text? It's this, that God establishes the prophetic office as His accommodated covenantal means of self-revelation to fallen men. That's what this text teaches us. And He does so first in the person of Samuel. Now I want you to consider God's faithfulness in this for a moment. Because He, he already came once to them and said, okay, I'll give you a prophet like unto Moses so that you can continue to receive my words, but I'm going to do it when you get into the land. I just need you to get into the land and conquer it. And when you do, the prophecies will begin to come. I'll raise somebody up so that you can have my words. Just take the land. But they don't do it. And they didn't do it, and yet God still comes and raises up a prophet for them. Why? Why would he do that? They didn't obey. He doesn't owe them the words. He doesn't owe them any speech whatsoever. They did not fulfill their end of the covenant. And yet, because as we say over and over again, God's plans go far beyond this symbolic nation. And He knows that even though they deserve to be wiped away and that one day He will be done with this nation, as we'll see in a moment, that Deuteronomy 18 not only promised a series of prophets to this nation, but it ultimately does promise a singular prophet who would eclipse even Moses. And so he must issue forth the line of prophets. And we see that these same prophets who do minister throughout Israel, as they come and they carry out their ministry, they do confirm this. They continually speak of this one 
who is to come. Malachi says in Malachi chapter 3, we read this, I don't know if it was this week or last week in men's group, I think it was the week before, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare the way before me. And the Adonai, the Lord whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, that's the word for prophet, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. We have encountered this language, like I said, of messenger of the covenant before. God, Malachi, God through Malachi is saying that there is another prophet who is to come. And so here you have a messenger of the Mosaic Covenant, a prophet messenger who is promising the coming of another covenant prophet messenger. Now, is he just promising another prophet like him is going to come? Uh, another Obadiah, another Ezekiel is going to come after Malachi and continue in this succession of, of prophets? No, because the prophets, you'll notice, never prophesy the coming of another prophet like unto them. Isaiah never prophesies of the coming of Daniel or Jeremiah. And it's because they know there is one of whom they have been commissioned to speak. And that is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, who will eclipse even them. And our Lord Jesus, of course, is presented to us as the prophet that Moses spoke of. Uh, the last in the line of these prophets that was begun in our text by the boy Samuel. In, in Deuteronomy 18, again, God said, I will raise up a prophet from among your brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and it is to him that you shall listen. So the prophet must come from the sons of Israel, and they are to listen to the man when he comes. And Jesus was born as a son of Israel. That's why those genealogies are so important in the Gospels. And as he begins his public ministry... God rends the heavens open and begins to speak down, and he says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Same language that was used in Deuteronomy 18. When I raise up the prophet and put my words in his mouth, it's to him you shall hearken. God says, You shall listen to this one. And even the greatest prophet of the old covenant, John the Baptist, was standing right nearby. And as God announces that the prophet, has come, he stands and gives his approval and says, Yes, behold, the Lamb of God. This is the one. Even the greatest of the old covenant prophets recognized it. And then you have it again on the Mount of Transfiguration. God gives further proof of the prophethood of Christ, and he does so by sending the two most appropriate figures to do it. He sends Moses, the one whom the final prophet would be modeled after, and he sends Elijah, one of the greatest of the prophets of the old covenant, as witnesses. And then he repeats the admonition. Listen to him. This is the prophet. Amen. Now what I want to do now in our last remaining 10 minutes or so is consider how is Christ a prophet like unto Moses? And really, there's sort of two sides of this coin that they're really getting at the same thing. We could consider it from the one side, how is Christ a prophet like unto Moses? But another way of really asking the exact same question would be to ask, how is Christ the most fitting answer to our need to have a mediated word from God? So let's do that right now. First, Christ has stood before the throne and received a word. We already saw him in Malachi 3 called messenger of the covenant, a term used for prophets. Then when Christ comes... 
It is obvious that he is conscious of this status that he holds. For he says that he has been sent, using that key prophetic uh, imagery. He says, I know where I come from, and he who sent me bears witness about me. So Christ says he has come from somewhere, and he's been sent. And then he says clearly in John chapter 8, He who sent me is true, and I declare the word I heard from him. See, he's picking up on the Old Testament prophet paradigm. The prophet heard the word, and then he was sent with the word. Jesus says, I say and speak the words that I heard that I was sent to tell. He's casting himself as the Old Testament prophets were. But what makes him superior in his having stood before the Father to receive the word? Other prophets stood in the divine council and received the word. So is Jesus just like another one of these prophets? He's also stood. He's also received the word. Is he just another Malachi, another Obadiah, or something like that? Well, the answer is no. Christ is superior in at least two ways. First, he is superior as to the timing of the reception of his prophetic word. When did Moses and the other prophets receive these revelations from God? In a time during their lives. There was a point in their finite lives where God called and commissioned them. They were enraptured into the divine council. They received the word, and then they go. When did Christ receive the words that he speaks of? Right after establishing his prophethood in John chapter 8, he ends it with this statement, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus, as we all know, is claiming to have eternally existed. But if we connect the two halves of John chapter 8 together, we get this. He's actually asserting that while Moses received a word in the wilderness, he got his words from eternity past. And that immediately puts him in a whole different category of prophet. The words that he brings to the sons of men are those which he has received from all eternity. No other prophet can claim that. He is superior in the timing of his prophetic reception. Second, he is superior in his prophetic access. Now we have said that, that prophets had to be given because sinful men cannot bear to speak with God face to face and live. But if you think about it, that's partially true for the prophets as well. They received revelation in the divine council but they had to do so in a visionary and dreamlike state. You think of Isaiah, even in that state, he feels so undone and overwhelmed by his unworthiness that the angel has to bring a coal of fire to put on his lips to cleanse him so that he can stand in the divine presence. But they all have these visionary experiences. Isaiah, uh, John in the Revelation. You think of Paul, whether in body or out of body, I don't know what it was. It was some kind of vision. Now Moses eclipsed all of those people in that he spoke to God face to face. He had no vision. Uh, that's exactly what Numbers 12 says. If there is a, a prophet among you, do I not speak to him in dreams and visions? Not so, my servant Moses. He speaks to God mouth to mouth as a man speaks to his friend. But even then, what Moses saw when he entered the pillar of cloud to behold the face of God was a accommodated theophany of God. That's what he was seeing. Moses did not witness the undiluted divine essence which no man can see. 
But as John tells us, that while no one has seen God at any time, the word that has dwelt in the Father's bosom has come and made him known. While Moses spoke face to face in a dispensation of types and shadows, Christ has eternally stood before the unveiled, undiluted, fully irradiated face of the eternal divine essence. Moses had to be cleft into a rock just for a portion of God's glory to pass by him. But Christ has eternally basked in the unrelenting, infinite, white-hot glory of the eternal act that is God's own intra-Trinitarian self-revelation. He has been receiving revelation from God for eternity, never needing a moment's reprieve or an ounce of veiling to shield him from its unfathomable intensity. And as that revelation basks over him again and again and again, he just stands there and takes it all in because he is very God of very God. While sinful men melt when hearing the unrestrained voice of God, Christ the Word has never ceased to be absorbed into the fullness of the infinite God. Who has stood in the counsel of the Lord? Christ has stood in the counsel of the Lord. No one could possibly be more qualified. No one. And so therefore, when Christ comes to speak to fallen creatures of what God is like, He knows of what He speaks. He has experienced it from all eternity with no mediation whatsoever. That's the first way that Christ is the true and ultimate prophet. He has stood preeminently in the divine counsel of God. Secondly, this will be the last one. Christ is the true covenant mediator. You see, God, as we often say, does not give random or uh, unhitched words or revelations. All of God's revelations come to men as messages that are a revelation and outworking of some covenant. Adam, all of the revelation he received, an outworking of the covenant of works. Israel's revelation, all an outworking of the Mosaic covenant. Our revelations come in the Son through a covenant. And when Christ comes into the world, He comes as a messenger of the covenant. But He comes as a messenger, interestingly, of two covenants. He was born under the law, which means what? He was born under the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic economy. And we read throughout the Gospels, His ministry was first the ministry unto the Jews. Why? Because that covenant, the Jewish Mosaic Sinaitic covenant, had not been formally resolved at that point in time. It was still in play. And so when Christ comes with a revelation, He comes speaking as a covenant mediator of that covenant as well. You think of the parables, the parable of the vineyard. Christ tells the, the story of the, the king who has a vineyard and he goes off into a faraway country. And then uh, he has tenants who are tending to it. And he sends messengers to the tenants over and over. And what do they do? They, they kick them out. They beat them. And then he says, I'll send my son. They'll listen to him. And he sends the son. And they kill him. And they cast him out. And then Jesus traps the Pharisees and says, what will God do to these servants? He's, and they say, oh, he'll cast those miserable wretches out. And in doing so, Jesus was telling a parable that the covenant curses of the Mosaic covenant are about to come on you. God is about to take away the kingdom from you and give it to a people producing its fruits. He came as messenger of the Mosaic Covenant to announce 
The time is fulfilled. It's at hand. The covenant has been broken, and it's over. But he comes secondly as the mediator, messenger of the covenant of redemption, the eternal one, what we know as the new covenant. Now remember, this is what it's all been leading up to. Mankind has needed since the garden to be reconciled, and God has a plan to do so through making a covenant. But we must have revelation of the terms of that covenant. We must have a revelation of it. And yet we can't bear to hear God speak directly as sinners. And so our need is a covenant messenger. If there's no prophet, there's no salvation. And Jesus, messenger of the covenant, comes with a word to give. He comes with a gospel to preach. For the gospel is a prophetic announcement of how men may be reconciled and how they may once again know the living God. Now consider the significance of this. Jesus steps to preach. And here you have alienated sinners who have spent centuries knowing there's a holy God whose law they have broken because they're made in His image. And they've, as all men do in these existential struggles, they've, they've asked themselves, where do I go? What do I do? How can I flee from the wrath to come that my conscience testifies to me is real? Put yourself in their shoes. You've never heard of Christ. You often ask yourself hard questions, as the Queen of Sheba undoubtedly did. How can I be right with God? You are an anxious soul, pressed down by, by the fear of death and the vexation of the vanity of everything under the sun, depressed, tortured in soul, never able to squeeze any lasting satisfaction out of all the things you obsess over in your life. You've labored your entire existence to find something to soothe your conscience, but you've got no word from God about how you can be reconciled. And yet you know in your soul that you must stand before Him, so you can't just sit back and do nothing, and so you resort to what all men do. You begin to, to, to look around you and desperately heap up little dirt piles of righteousness that you, so you can have something to bring before God, but even then you have no way of being assured that it's going to be enough. No way, no measuring stick that will assure you that you've done it. And so anxious vexed and desperate for some confirmation of the way back to God's garden, you need someone to come from God and tell you that's what you need. And then you hear it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. The water that I give will become a fountain welling up to eternal life. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And as the Spirit gives a blessing, your eyes are opened, and now you know this man is the messenger of the covenant. As Peter says, he has the words of eternal life. Christ Jesus is the prophet of the greater covenant, which promises redemption. Moses prophesied in types and shadows but Christ prophesies the eternal covenant of glory. And finally, his superiority to the former prophets as a covenant messenger is seen in this, that whereas the former prophets were sort of middlemen, they were, they were heralding covenants whose substance was found outside themselves, Christ comes to herald the eternal covenant of which he's not only the messenger, but its subject, its object, its sacrifice, its priest, its king, 
Its entire substance. Moses could never have said to the Israelites, I am the way. He could never have said to the Israelites, come to me and I'll give you rest. It's blasphemy. He could never have done it. And yet so wonderful is our Lord Jesus that when the divine mind had contrived a plan to bring the knowledge of salvation to lost and damned sinners, they counseled among themselves and says, what messenger shall go for us to herald this news of great joy? And it wasn't an angel who stepped forward. It was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who said, Here am I, send me. That is the great love with which our prophet has loved us, church. He comes to bring the knowledge of salvation to rebels like us. Where there's no prophetic word, sinners must perish. And so let's give thanks to God that He has met our greatest need to know the living God again and to know the way by which we can be reconciled to Him. And he's done so in the person of the greatest prophet who could ever be conceived. Little Samuel, called to engage in the office of the prophet, that we might one day be able to receive God's revelation through his ultimate prophet. So let's go to him now in prayer, and let us thank the Lord for his wonderful works which he has wrought in his prophet.